0: The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Well, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. I want to read two scriptures this morning, very brief. Turn first of all to Deuteronomy chapter 24, where we'll read just f- the first four verses. And then we'll move back into Gospel, uh, the Gospel of Matthew which we are working through week by week, and we'll read verses 31 and 32 of chapter 5. So Deuteronomy 24, 1 to 4, and then Matthew 5, 31 to 32, and the connection between the two will swiftly become obvious. This is God's word. Let's give our attention to it. then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. And Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. This is Jesus speaking. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife... Let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Amen, and thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Lord, as we come now to these challenging passages and themes of your word, we cry out to you, Give us help in our time of need. Give us help, Lord God, that we might understand uh, your word. We might rightly apply it to our hearts and our circumstances. Uh, Grant your spirit to work richly in us, and may we see the true depths uh, and the blessedness of biblical marriage as you have ordained it. Give me words to speak. Give us all ears to hear what your spirit has to say to the church. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. It's usually the case that a low view of one aspect of the law of God, one of God's commandments, usually leads to a low view of all of God's commandments. We saw last week how in Uh, verse 27, and the week before in verse 21, our Lord is showing the Jews that their understanding of the law of God was at best superficial, more likely wholly corrupted. And this had bled through also into their view of marriage and their view of divorce, given that their view of Uh, adultery verse 27 and, and fidelity was was rotten so too was their view of marriage and divorce biblical marriage is not disposable and yet that's precisely what it had become for the jews of our lord's day it is not disposable and here we observe our lord in very clear and unequivocal terms uh, delineating the Jews' wicked view of marriage, their easy and permissive view of divorce. And we also witness our Lord showing the true sense of his law, showing a righteous view of marriage and divorce. This for sure is not a feel-good sermon. If you're visiting with us uh Just today, this is simply how we work through Scriptures. We go verse by verse, and we have come to this passage today. We can't dodge difficult passages in Scripture. We must deal with them, because this is the Lord's Word to us right now. And so what we have before us in these two verses is two simple points. There is, first of all, in verse 31, the law misinterpreted. That's by the standard of the Jews. The law misinterpreted. And then we have in verse thirty two the law revealed the standard of King Jesus. the law misinterpreted then the law revealed. We read this in verse thirty one of Matthew five. It was also said, "Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate." Of divorce. We've already seen how the Jews had systematically emptied the power and significance of the law of God. They had diluted the law of God to the point of corruption. And divorce in the time of Christ was terribly easy for men and very hard, if not impossible, for women. And the reason for the ease of divorce, especially for men, was that the Jews had systematically changed the focus of marriage and divorce laws and moved from the legitimate reasons for divorce to the mechanism by which they could effect a divorce. Let me say that again. It's key to the whole passage The reason for the ease of divorce in the time of Christ was that the Jews had systematically changed the focus of the law of God. The law of God focused upon the reasons or legitimate reasons for divorce, but the Jews focused upon the mechanism by which a divorce could be brought about, that is, the bill of divorce. And so it was for the Jews as if divorce was permissible in any given situation so long as they had held to the right process or the accepted process of their own tradition. In other words, male Jews at the time of Christ, before and after, wanted to give themselves a get-out clause from marriage that God himself did not Give them. They could say, Yes, I've divorced my wife, but I've done it in the accepted way. How did they end up like this? How did they reach this point? Well, let's go back to what the law of Moses says. Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Uh, Deuteronomy 24, in those first four verses, we see that the principal focus there is not upon the mechanism of divorce, the bill of divorce, it's not on the mechanism but it's on the legitimate reasons for a divorce in marriage and uh, and conduct uh, consequent to or subsequent to the divorce it's not about the mechanism per se though it's in there for sure it's about the reasons god is saying divorce can take place we see there in verse 1 when a man's wife uh, when a man takes a wife and marries her if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he found some indecency in her he may give her a certificate of divorce That's the fundamental idea here the reason is that she he found some indecency in her the giving of a certificate of divorce then is a seal that legitimate biblical reasons have been found to end a marriage through divorce that's the purpose of the bill of divorce uh, the bill of divorce the principal focus here is the cause some indecency has been found in one of the parties we'll come back to that in a minute uh, that indecency really means sexual immorality if we did searches on the word and its context we would see sexual immorality is the uh, is the legitimate reason here in deuteronomy for separation but the jews as they had with all the other laws had gutted this law and replaced the word indecency or its interpretation with their own interpretation remember the jews believed that god handed down a commentary from heaven when he gave the ten commandments And that commentary was inspired by God, they said, handed down orally from generation to generation. Uh, And we have to also acknowledge that not only is that the reason they got to their place, but we would have to say that Jewish society at the time of Christ was dominated by often sinful men. Men who used the oral tradition of the elders of Israel to excuse their own sinful lifestyle. It's a classic abuse of authority that's going on here. Remember, the Jews had their oral law, that tradition passed down from generation to generation and then codified a couple of hundred years after Christ. Commentary after commentary after commentary had been written upon the law of God. I'm going to give you three examples. Beit Shammai, the house of Shammai, would say this on this passage. No man shall divorce his wife unless he found in her unchaste behavior, sexual immorality. So they've understood the text correctly, those who belong to the house of Shammai. But then there's the house of Hillel, And listen to what Rabbi Hillel would say, even if the wife spoiled her husband's food, because it is said there is some indecency in her. He's permitted to divorce her. Rabbi Akiva perhaps even gets it more wrong. He says, even if he found another woman prettier than his wife, as it is stated, if it happens, she finds no favor in his eyes. Some laws, you just know, are written by unregenerate men. And it gives us a sense of the abominable view that the Jews had imposed upon the people of God with respect to marriage And divorce. The Westminster Confession of Faith, which is the confession of faith of this church, on its chapter on marriage and divorce, really looking back on this passage and others like it, says this The corruption of man be such as is apt to study arguments unduly to put asunder those whom God hath joined together the corruption, the wickedness, the sinfulness of man, be such as is apt to study arguments unduly to put asunder those whom God hath joined together. In other words, the Jews were apt to study reasons for divorce. In their sin, they had laid aside the command of God and held to the traditions of men. Why? Because it gave them a way out. They were asked to study reasons for divorce. And that's the problem, isn't it? When man seeks to define marriage according to his own image, apart from God, aside from the law of God, he will arrive at the conclusion that marriage is for self. And if marriage is for self, then it can be dissolved for selfish interests also. Are we surprised, friends? That these people, starting without God in their marriage, ended up without God in the whole of their lives. We're not, are we? Instead of finding reasons to remain married, to strive in marriage for righteousness, the Jews studied reasons to dissolve the bond of marriage. What God had joined together, they were prepared to put asunder I think we can derive some lessons for us today. And I want to say, before we derive any lessons, I can't possibly say in one sermon everything that needs to be said about divorce and marriage. That would require a whole series, taking into account Deuteronomy, taking into account Malachi 2, taking into account Matthew 5, Matthew 19, and 1 Corinthians 7. I can't say everything that needs to be said. But here our Lord is stating that only sexual immorality, and the Holy Spirit through Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 will add the reason of desertion, only sexual immorality and desertion are legitimate reasons for divorce. That's what Christ is telling us in his word. And yet, even as we say that at a categorical level, sexual immorality, uh, desertion, even when we say that, do we not acknowledge that those two areas themselves have a variety of grey areas within them? What is sexual immorality? Does, for example, pornography use count as sexual immorality that can lead legitimately to a divorce? If so, how much pornography use can lead to a divorce? How frequent use of it should lead legitimately to a divorce? What about desertion? Can there be desertion while two people remain in the same home? Abusive behavior from husband to wife, wife to husband. What is abuse? How much abuse constitutes enough for a divorce? We can say, for example, that every sin is an abuse of position and the grace of God. But none of us are foolish enough to say that all sins in our homes between husbands and wives are legitimate reasons to end a marriage. There's not one of us in this room, I suspect, I hope anyway, who would say that. That not every sin in our homes, in our marriages, can warrant a divorce. And so we need to refocus on what our Lord has said. There are two categories, broad though they may be, whereby our Lord gives right to sue for divorce in marriage, sexual immorality, and desertion. We, as Christians, are not to be like the Jews. We are not to be apt to study reasons for divorce. The world has done that. The church is increasingly doing that. You are not to be like that. God has given us these reasons for good reason, and we'll turn to that in a minute. We are to be discerning. We are not to be diluting the law of God. And it's for this reason our Lord came and gave this very sermon so that we would understand the legitimate biblical reasons for divorce. And in doing so, we would understand a whole lot more about marriage and the blessed estate that marriage is for us. Uh, We're not just to think about the negative here. Uh, What are my reasons for divorce? We're to think, no, I am to strive in my relationships for righteousness between husband and wife, wife and husband, those who are considering marriage or who will get married. We are all to consider these matters. The righteousness required of us positively in the enacting of love to one another in the marriage bond. That's why our Lord came, to take his people back to the root, the law of God in which there is much grace and much protection. That's what our Lord has come to do, to reveal the law. Here we see the standard of the king of righteousness, verse 32. Our Lord deals with this matter. Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce, which, by the way, is not what Deuteronomy 24 says. That's not what Deuteronomy 24 says. Deuteronomy 24 is much, much fuller than that. That's what the Jews were saying well, I've divorced my wife. It's not proper unless I give her a certificate of of divorce. Our Lord comes back and says, verse 32, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman in this situation commits adultery. What is Christ doing here? He's reaffirming He's restating what the law always had in it. He's not giving new law. He's taking his people back to the old law of God. Here and in Matthew 19, where he deals with a similar subject, he's exegeting, expositing Deuteronomy 24. And showing that Deuteronomy 24 is not the sum total, or rather verse 31, is not the sum total of deuteronomy 24 no we have the word incarnate exegeting the perfectly the written word jesus christ the word incarnate exegeting the written word what's he saying what's he doing the jews remember had identified the means of divorce as being the fundamental aspect of divorce law so that the mechanism for bringing about a divorce became to them more prominent and important than the reasons for divorce and their subsequent conduct after divorce, remarriage. But Christ, however, doesn't focus on the bill of divorce at all in verse 32. The certificate of divorce is not even in his mind, at least uh, explicitly. The reasons for divorce or a legitimate divorce, and the conduct after divorce are in his mind. He's not setting aside the bill of divorce, of course, but he's dealing with the heart of the issue, which the Jews had removed from their thinking. He says in verse 32, Whoever divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. We've already seen what the Jews thought of finding no favor, Deuteronomy 24 1. Of some indecency, Deuteronomy 24 again. We've already seen what they made of that. They butchered it. But Jesus, by his teaching, here reestablishes the depths and the union of true biblical marriage. The indecency of Deuteronomy is what he says it is here, except on the ground of sexual immorality. Matthew 19.9 affirms the same. Sexual immorality in marriage is a legitimate ground for divorce. Finding no favor because of some indecency, the language of Deuteronomy, is a specific, carefully defined and delineated category whereby lawfully and legitimately a divorce may be sued for. But that's not to say that every time there is sexual immorality in a home, even of a gross nature within a marriage... That's not necessarily to say that that marriage must end in divorce. Yes, we have the reasons for divorce given here, and it is legitimate to do so, but we also have the concept in Scripture of repentance and forgiveness. But notwithstanding that, there is a reason given here by our Lord, sexual immorality, very clear. And also we ought to note that just because our Lord is speaking of men divorcing women though I don't think this happened much in his age, the same is true if the shoe is on the other foot. At least in our society, it would seem to me. Our Lord speaks of sexual immorality. That's the Greek word porneia, from which we get our word pornography. Uh, What does he mean by it? Well, porneia covers a raft of sexual sins, fornication, adultery, Incest, bestiality and so on. perhaps we might even say that in a marriage, habitual use of pornography falls under this pornea, though there would be debate on that. But all these sins, however we delineate them, break the rule of Genesis 2:24. All these sins, pornea sins, break the rule of Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall, shall hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. They shall become one flesh. Now, we need to acknowledge, do we not, we live in a highly sexualized and a highly disposable world and there is a great assault on every single person in this room the temptation is to go to those two extremes to adopt the attitudes and norms of the world with respect to sexual morality the temptation is real and it is there we all know it but there is also a temptation to adopt the disposable attitude that the world has That everything in life, including marriage, is really actually disposable upon the conditions that you feel it is disposable. Scripture delineates two sins, sexual immorality and desertion, as being the only sins or category of sins whereby a marriage might be legitimately ended. Why is that? Why is it here in Matthew 5, Matthew 19, 1 Corinthians 7, we find sexual immorality and desertion the only legitimate reasons for biblical divorce? It's because these two sins go to the very heart of a covenant marriage. They strike at the very heart of covenant marriage, two becoming one flesh. Husband and wife united in the covenant of marriage becoming one flesh for one party in that covenant union to sin sexually with another is to break the very bond of two becoming one flesh it severs that bond for one party to desert, 1 Corinthians 7.15, is again to sever the bond, the union of two becoming one flesh. That's why these sins are so egregious in the context of marriage, because they do a death blow, strike a death blow to the heart of the marriage bond. Now, to be clear, Our Lord is not minimizing the struggles, the other sin struggles of our marriages. He's not minimizing anger. He's already dealt with that. Not minimizing lust, retaliation. He's not minimizing the offenses that we give against each other and receive from our our wives and our husbands. He's not minimizing any of the painful realities that some marriages are. He is not minimizing those realities. He's simply acknowledging there are two categories of sin which are catastrophic to the two becoming one flesh. Those other sins, of which there are many, while they are sometimes exceedingly vexatious and hard to bear, our Lord is saying are not catastrophic to the marriage bond. They are not. You might think, well, what if one murders the other? Well, you're not in the realm of divorce there. You're in the realm of capital punishment. You're being dealt with by another law. No, all those sins are real sins. And if they were were legitimate reason for divorce, then we could all sue for divorce, every one of us in this room. And the temptation for Christians today... And I say this with care because this is not an easy area to deal with. The temptation for Christians today is to try and shoehorn our own experience into one of these two categories. Oh, well, he's done this or she's done that. It must fit into one of those two categories. Sometimes it simply doesn't. Not all our sin fits into these two categories. It just doesn't. Otherwise, our Lord would have said any sin is legitimate grounds for divorce. Brethren, I want to apply this carefully, if I can, and somewhat briefly, acknowledging once again the limitations of a single sermon on this issue. Our Lord is, first of all, pointing those who are married, he is pointing us through this teaching back to our own marriages. He is pointing us back to re examine our view, our commitment in marriage. And I want to say to any here, young or old, if you're struggling in your relationship with your husband or wife, in your marriage, if you're struggling, come and speak to your elders. Come and speak to us right away. Don't delay. Don't delay and let something that is perhaps manageable and treatable turn into something that is irredeemable. Come and speak to your elders. Uh, Those are the men that God has appointed in the church to be your chief counselors in matters like this. He has set your elders apart for this very purpose. And we care for you. Even if sometimes we have to say hard or unpleasant things to you, it's because we care for your souls. I want to say to young people, you're bombarded daily by images and attitudes regarding marriage, divorce, sexuality, and so on, especially friends through social media and the music you listen to parents you really need to get a handle on what your children are listening to especially as they get older by what are you being fed young people teens early 20s by what are you being fed what's going into your heart which speaks to you of another standard uh, another way supposedly of doing marriage divorce relationships you see, the Lord is calling you young people now, even children, to think very deeply about the nature of relationships and marriage. And as he speaks to young people, he calls all of us, of course, to examine ourselves, especially husbands and wives. Are you fulfilling your vows to each other? Are you thinking seriously about what it means to be a godly husband and a godly wife so that you can avoid this terrible scenario you've made serious commitments to each other and those commitments undoubtedly take work what are you doing in terms of discipleship to improve that marriage bond that you have husbands husbands are you leading well in the home are you making yourself easy to follow and to listen to, to, listen to? if you're loving your wife As Christ loved the church, you will be a good leader in the home. You will be easy to follow. If you're a brute, a dictator, careless, insensitive, unloving, expect trouble in your marriage. Plain and simple. Wives, are you following well in the home? I mean, that's not the simple quantity or quality of all your work in the home indeed you're a great leader in the home as well wives are you submitting to your husband if you need to or are you in substantial agreement with them on things are you laying down bad habits as husbands should be as well putting them aside husbands and wives seeking to bless each other in the way you live the way you talk the way you think What you're prepared to sacrifice in your life, dear friend. What you're prepared to sacrifice for the well-being of your husband or wife. That's the essence of love, isn't it? Laying aside one's own desires, even one's own sins, so that you might serve your husband or your wife well. We've spoken to singles, we've spoken to husbands and wives Let's also speak of the church. Because we know, do we not, that marriage, Paul says in Ephesians 5, is to be a picture of Christ's relationship with his church. When we say it like that, it's pretty staggering that the Lord has ordained it in that way, isn't it? Because often our marriages don't really look like a picture of Christ and the church. But nonetheless, they are to be such. And we are to function in our marriages in the same way that Christ relates to his bride and that the bride, the church, relates to Christ. Now, we can preach a whole new sermon on that from Ephesians 5.25. We've not got time. But therein lies the paradigm, the pattern, for how we are to be conducting ourselves in marriage. So not just are we to be studying or we're not to be studying ways how we might get divorced. We're actively to be studying ways in which we can look like Christ and his church. How we can delight in each other as husbands and wives. How we can serve each other. How we can put the other first. How we can care and nurture. Because ultimately Christian marriage between husband and wife is, as scripture says, a picture of, Of Christ's relationship with his church and the church united to Christ can never be defeated it can never be overcome and shall never be separated from him and that's the paradigm ordinarily for husbands and wives that what God has joined together let not man put asunder let's pray Lord God, bless your word unto our hearts. Uh, Rebuke us if necessary, but refresh us, we pray, that by your law, which in the hands of the Spirit is of great aid and assistance to us, we might look again unto the Savior, seeing the answer to our sins in him, and look to the Spirit, seeing the answer to our sanctification in him and so be pleased father in heaven to bless us bless the marriages of this church bless those contemplating marriage with a fidelity to your word a commitment to the very same and lord as your children by your grace seek to serve you well in marriage be pleased to open up the heavens and pour out upon them blessing After blessing, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.